Welcome to So-Called Discoveries, where we discuss stories, knowledge, and insights from somewhere and try to learn something. My name is Anthony Ozzi. In this episode, we are discussing The Effective Executive. It was a book written by Peter F. Drucker, and it was originally published in 1967. I'll read a bit from the summary in the back of the book. What makes an effective executive? The measure of the executive, Peter F. Drucker reminds us, is the ability to get the right things done. This usually involves doing what other people have overlooked as well as avoiding what is unproductive. Intelligence, imagination, and knowledge may all be wasted in an executive job without the acquired habits of mind that mold them into results. Drucker identifies five practices essential to the business effectiveness that can and must be learned. It then goes on to list them. We're going to discuss those five practices in detail, so I am not going to list them just yet, but that is from the back of the book. In more casual terms, what's the book actually about? Again, it's about the definitive guide to getting the right things done, and getting the right things done is, as far as the book is concerned, essentially equivalent with effectiveness. That's what it means when it says someone who is effective. It's someone who can get the right things done. And the book is really about how to manage yourself for effectiveness. And it says that there are five practices, as I mentioned, to effectiveness. And at a high level, they are managing your time, choosing contributions, building on strengths, focusing on priorities, and making effective decisions. And again, we're going to spend the bulk of this episode discussing the details of them. So don't worry. But before, just a couple terms that we want to discuss Firstly, effectiveness is the term. And like I said, effectiveness is about getting the right things done. And the important thing to understand is that effectiveness is a discipline. It's not a special gift or a talent. It's a discipline that can be learned. And the book argues that it must be learned. And it's all done through habit. It's different and separate from intelligence and hard work and knowledge. And it really comes down to a few practices done over time consistently. And It's required for performance from the perspective of both individuals and organizations. So that's effectiveness. The second term that I want to uh, clarify is executive. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. The book's called The Effective Executive. The terms I'm defining are effectiveness and executive. So an executive, their job is to make decisions. That's really in the essence, what their role is. It's about decision-making. It's not only someone who carries out orders. Their job essentially is to be effective. Effect as a verb and execute also as a verb are near synonyms. Effect is to make something happen or something along those lines and execute is to carry something out like such that something happens. Importantly, an executive's decisions and contributions affect the organization's capacity for results. So their decisions carry a lot of weight and impact, and they are defined by the results. They're not defined as so much by quantities or costs. Results have a higher emphasis, have a higher priority over effort. The book argues that highly effective executives are uncommon. And again, this was published in 1967, but I can't imagine that it's that much different today from 
the types of qualities that the book was looking at. On the other hand, it does say that executives of high intelligence, imagination, and knowledge are common. This just goes to continue to show that this book sees effectiveness as separate from those characteristics. While this book is certainly written for executives in mind, the principles for effectiveness apply generally to all of us in our lives. And part of my goal for this episode is to relate these principles generally to being effective as an individual. And part of being effective as an individual is being effective as an executive in your own life in terms of making decisions in your own life. The principles apply to pretty much anyone. I want to spend a few moments discussing the importance of effectiveness. Effectiveness as an individual in modern society for many people depends on their ability to be effective in an organization. Most people in modern societies work in some sort of an organization. You might work for a software company or an advertising company or an automotive company or a nonprofit or a hospital or a school or uh, some sort of a startup, whatever it is. The majority of people in modern developed societies work in some sort of an organization. And that means that for the majority of people, their ability to be effective depends on their ability to be effective within that organization. And this applies especially to knowledge roles, but worker performance, motivation, and commitment generally depends on the worker's effectiveness and therefore their ability to achieve. And getting the right things done, which I've mentioned a couple of times, is notably different than doing things right. Getting the right things done is about effectiveness, while doing things right is about being correct. As an example, let's say there's a a highly talented team of engineers who produces fantastic designs for a new product. And this product was meant to solve a specific problem. It's really well thought through. The plans are extremely thorough. They're written in a way where you can essentially start building tomorrow and they present it. But then what they end up figuring out is, although they did a great job putting all the plans and the designs together, it didn't actually solve the problem that they were meant to solve. They came up with a design that was correct to implement the product that they had designed but they didn't get the right things done because a significant part of their job was to understand the problem and from there produce the correct solution. Producing the solution without understanding the problem inherently means that you cannot produce the correct solution. That's a quick distinction between getting the right things done and doing things right. Both important, but different. Now, effectiveness is key to getting the right things done especially in knowledge work, like I mentioned. However, workers typically cannot be closely supervised for effectiveness. They can only be helped and guided. In the end, an individual must self-direct themselves towards effectiveness. However, the book and myself argue that we should, as individuals, we should be working towards effectiveness. It is the thing that determines the type of results that we're going to produce. Working towards effectiveness as we're going to learn, enables control over our own time and it ensures that we're not beaten by the demands and pressures from our organization or from elsewhere. Being effective is certainly about being effective and productive at work, but also in your our personal lives and working on our projects or if you're a business owner or if you're trying to become a business owner, you're starting a side hustle, 
whatever it is. It's also about developing productive relationships, as we'll discuss in detail, and also about producing significant results. Increasing your effectiveness multiplies your capacity for results. Any ability and knowledge that you already have yield better and more results as you increase effectiveness. And because effectiveness can be learned through these repeatable, habitual steps over time, it is both a modest and an achievable goal. And an important one, a crucial one, as we'll learn. Starting now by getting into the first of the five practices that we've been referencing, managing your time. A significant part of managing your time is knowing where your time goes. And in order to know where your time goes, we must record our time. That's the first step. Effective time managers do not start by planning. They first find where their time goes. That is, they start with time, not tasks. So to manage your time first requires first finding and knowing where it goes. And in order to do that, we must keep a record or a log of our time. The specific method of keeping this record does not actually matter. Use a journal with a pen and paper, or you can use a notes app on your phone. You can use a specific time tracking app. You can use any method that you like as long as it makes sense to you and it's as frictionless as possible. You, you don't want to overcomplicate it. You want it to be simple so that you can revisit it and keep up with it regularly and not have a lot of struggle in using it. Because the important thing is you need to be recording your time in real time. It's very crucial that you do that. As you're actually spending the time, keep track and keep a log of what you're doing. That means you can't look back on the day and say, this is how I spent my day and, and, and say like, okay, I did this from 8 a.m. to 8.30. No, you can't do that. You can't even look back on the last hour. You have to actually, as you're spending your time, record it. Some people are more into time recording than others. Many effective time managers actually log their time continuously as a habit and review it on some sort of an interval, perhaps monthly. At a minimum, effective time managers log a three to four week period at least two times per year. The book says that's, that's the minimum for the most effective time managers. You want to make sure you get a solid sample of how you're actually spending your time and you want to do it frequently enough to be in tune with your time. Because the idea is that at each of these iterations, you're rethinking and reworking your schedule to further optimize and, and further improve your time. Once we have recorded our time, the next step is to perform time diagnosis and analysis. And the goal here is to manage and cut unproductive time demands from our schedule. The reason being is that most tasks, especially the important ones that really contribute the results, require a large chunk of time. And anything less than whatever that minimum chunk is, is essentially waste because it's equivalent to having to start over the next time because you haven't progressed or focused sufficiently enough to make significant progress. And so what we need to do is consolidate what's known as discretionary time. And the book considers discretionary time as time that is available and under our control. And we should be reserving discretionary time for the big tasks that really contribute results. 
Before we do that, before we look at consolidating discretionary time, we first look at the non-productive time wasters, those demands on our schedules that need to be cut. And in order to find them, there are three diagnostic questions we can use to examine the items on our schedule. The first of them being, what if this was not done at all? This question, it allows us to find and eliminate pure time wasters. If the answer to what if this item was not done at all is nothing, you've found what is essentially pure waste because it doesn't contribute anything. So it can be eliminated from your schedule immediately because nothing's going to happen if it gets eliminated. The second question is, what on my schedule can be done by others? We never have enough time in our schedules, especially if we work in an organization especially if we work in a knowledge organization. We need to push on to others anything that we do not need to personally be doing. This is not about getting other people to do your job. But like I said, in a knowledge organization, you are often given unproductive demands on our schedules. There are things put on your plate that do not necessarily contribute to your main results, what your main purpose to the organization is, but they get assigned to you anyways. It's our responsibility to be in tune with what our main contribution to the organization should be and to ensure that we're doing everything that we can to remove unproductive demands from our schedules and allow more focus on the things that are more important. And by pushing tasks onto others that do not need to be done by us, or at least asking the question, what can be done by others, you're beginning to open that door and beginning to think, what is it that I actually need to be doing, me personally, and what is it that other people can do, and then working to optimize that. It is in both your interest and the interest of your organization to do everything you can to remove unproductive time demands from your schedule. The third diagnostic question is asking others How do I waste your time without contributing to your effectiveness? This question is great because finding tasks as a result of this question is essentially finding a source of time waste that is usually 100% under your own control. And you can eliminate it on your own through your own action almost immediately in most cases. Because... When you ask somebody, how do I waste your time without contributing to your effectiveness? You're asking about the way in which you work. So it's about your own actions. Because it's important to keep in mind that it is possible to do productive work in a manner that wastes the time of other people. So we should keep this in mind, especially if you work in an organization, obviously. And systematically asking this question and doing it confidently and and without fear of what the answers might be, according to the book, is the mark of an effective executive. So it places high importance on having the humility and the wisdom to ask that question and then act on it. Those are the three questions that we can use to help diagnose and locate time waste from our schedule. Unless our time is managed, nothing is really managed. So that's why this is really important. And time use does improve with practice. I can certainly attest to that. But without active time management and analysis, we all eventually drift into time waste. I I, I can certainly attest to that too. And the only way to prevent that is through perpetual time management practices. And the process of time analysis is an accessible and systematic way 
to analyze your work and think through what really matters. And if you really want to learn more about this, I recommend digging into this part of the book. There's a lot of benefit from digging into your time. So after we've performed time diagnosis and analysis, we're looking at the results of those practices and we're saying, how do we manage, cut, and consolidate our time, particularly those unproductive demands? We already discussed some of the diagnostic questions, but then in an organization in particular, there are some common typical sources of time waste. One of them is a lack of system or foresight. A common symptom of this is the recurrent crisis. The book makes a point to say that a crisis that occurs two times should not be allowed to occur again. Another common source of time waste can be overstaffing. In an organization, particularly a knowledge organization, people have to spend much time explaining to each other what it is that they're working on. It's a requirement of working in a large organization of people with diverse sets of skills. But too many people become an impediment for performance. You need room to move and the ability to actually make your contribution without having to explain it. Similarly, but different to overstaffing is an excess of meetings, which is another common source of time waste. Uh, A meeting is a concession to organization. If you're meeting, you're inherently not working. You can't be doing the work while you're meeting because when you're meeting, you're talking about the work. A lot of times we consider meeting part of our work. There may be some meetings where it's part of our work. Maybe you're giving a proposal to a customer. But in most cases, when we're meeting, we're not actually doing real work. We're talking about the real work and maybe the ramifications about it and the planning of it and the progress of it and things like that. You're not actually doing the real work when you're in meetings. Ideally, there would be no meetings and you would just be able to do the work humans don't work that way. That possibility does not exist. So because of that, our meetings need to be both purposeful and directed, and they cannot be the main demand on our time. This is getting more and more common, especially with the rise of remote work. People are end up being forced into multitasking because they spend way too much of their time in meetings and they don't have enough time to do the important work. And the book says that meeting excess is often a symptom that work is distributed or spread too thinly because you're spending too much time having to communicate about the contribution, having to communicate about the work as opposed to actually doing it. So you should consider trying to consolidate the work that's being done over multiple components or multiple jobs into less or into a single component or job. Another common source of time waste is malfunction of information. You could have the correct information, but it could be improperly distributed. Uh, You end up wasting time and certain people have to investigate it. They may also have meetings, work on the tasks, and then they find out the information was distributed to them incorrectly. And it's like, oh, well, this shouldn't even go to us. It should go to this different team. Ends up wasting a bunch of time The information itself was correct, it just was not distributed correctly, or maybe it was in the wrong format. So we've been discussing cutting unproductive time, now let's shift to consolidation, specifically consolidation of discretionary time. Again, for the big tasks that contribute the most results, and that if you succeed in and perform highly in, contribute greater and better results. We should not assume that we're going to have a great amount of discretionary time, regardless of the amount of cutting that we do, especially when we work in a large organization. And that's why we really need to focus on consolidation. Imagine if you have a quarter of your day from whatever your start of the working day is to the end of the working day. Imagine 
cumulatively, your discretionary time makes up one quarter or 25% of your day. And let's say you're able to consolidate that into a single solid chunk such that you're able to consistently for that quarter of your day work through the most important work that you need to do. That is actually a sufficient amount of productive time for you to focus. Now, consider the inverse of that. Consider three quarters of the day for discretionary time. But instead of it being in a single continuous chunk, it's split up across smaller chunks of maybe 15 to 30 minutes. And it's spread out throughout the day. You have a lot of interruptions and task switching. And it's 75% of your day. You might think, yeah, you're going to get a lot done. But when it's split up like that, you're not going to really be able to focus. You're not going to be able to get into a flow. So if you're working on the really important, critical work, you're not going to be able to make progress. We already said earlier, for the important work, we need a minimum amount of sufficient, consistent time. And 15 to 30 minutes is usually not long enough to dive into really important work. Every 15 to 30 minutes, you're essentially going to be like repeating things and starting over. And you're going to say, okay, where did I leave off? And you're not going to be able to consistently work through something important. So we need to find the discretionary time through the record and through the analysis. Don't just make assumptions by looking at your calendar. Actually perform the practice of recording your time, doing the analysis, and then let the data tell you where your discretionary time is, and then consolidate that into the largest possible chunks to allow for focused work. There are some strategies that you can use to help facilitate the discovery and consolidation of discretionary time. For example, if you typically go to an office, if it's possible and feasible, try working from home once a week. Spending that time at home will make it more likely that you're able to focus and have less distractions and interruptions and make it more likely that you're able to progress on the important work that requires concentration. Another option is to do an early morning work session starting work earlier than you typically would, either from home or getting into the office early. Most people are not going to be, for example, into the office until 9 a.m., depending on the work that you're doing. So if you get into the office at 7 a.m. or 7.30, that gives you a solid chunk of time before most people start to trickle in. Additionally, people aren't going to be emailing you or messaging you that early. Another option is to schedule certain types of work on certain days. Meetings, for example, like you have meetings that you need to get done every week. Instead of having them done one or two meetings four days a week, see if you can get all of those meetings on one or two days. Sure, those days are going to have a lot of meetings, but then you're going to have a lot of leftover space on the other days that may make it more likely for you to be able to consolidate discretionary time on those other days and get get some serious work done. So record your time perform the analysis and the diagnosis, estimate the realistic available discretionary time, and set it aside, and then be disciplined about it. Because that's where the important work is. When new time pressures come in, you have to understand that that discretionary time contains the most important work that you need to get done, and you need to do everything that you can to give it the sufficient work. Now, obviously, there are going to be crises that need to be addressed, but you need to Do everything that you can through perpetual time management to protect that discretionary time. It is critical to being effective and it is critical to making progress on the top priorities. We mentioned earlier that time analysis allows you to think through what matters. Well, consolidating discretionary time enables us to concentrate 
on what really matters. And concentrating on what really matters feeds nicely into the second practice to effectiveness. The first one was managing time, and the second is choosing our contributions. Choosing your contribution, simply enough, begins with asking, what can I contribute? And doing an honest assessment of that. Asking, what can I contribute? What it comes down to is prioritizing results over effort. It's taking responsibility for the results, regardless of the effort. And that's really what executives do, what effective executives do. It's they hold themselves accountable for the performance of the whole, for the organization. So if you want to be successful as an individual within an organization, you need to understand what does performance for the organization look like? What contribution does the organization make? What results does the organization produce? And then when you think of those, you think of those goals, you think of those priorities, and that helps you determine what what it is that you need to contribute as an individual. And in choosing your contribution and holding yourself accountable for the whole, you ask yourself, what do I do here? What is it that I can do here? What can I contribute here? And it requires you to think beyond what does my job description say is required of me to what can I actually contribute? What can I actually do here? There's a famous scene from the movie, it's a comedy called Office Space, where a corporation brings in some outside consultants and they go around asking people, asking everybody, interviewing them about their jobs. And they keep saying, what do you, what do, you do here? What exactly is it that you do here? And it's a really funny scene. But essentially they're asking people to justify why they're on the payroll. Why is it that we should keep you here? And they're looking for answers outside of the job description. And and, and choosing our contribution, it's key that we look for unused potential in the role. And if we don't do that, what we risk is aiming too narrow or too low in our contributions. What we'll find is if we rely on the job description, what is often considered excellent performance in large organizations is nothing but a shadow of the full potential contribution that one can make in the role. And in further determining where to make our contribution, there are three key areas of performance where all organizations need to achieve results and do well, or essentially over time, they'll decay and and go out of business. Those three areas are direct results, values, and people. And real quickly, direct results is like sales, profits, um, for most companies, if it's a company, a for-profit company, uh, for a hospital, it would be patient care, uh, for a nonprofit, it might be whatever the, you know, their mission is, the, the direct results of whatever they're trying to work on for values. It's about building and reaffirming the values within the organization through the practices and the culture and the habits. And it's, it's about defining what the organization stands for. People is about building and developing talent, uh, the people for tomorrow that are going to carry the organization. The next generation should essentially be 
taking for granted everything that the current generation of employees is is going through and having to do and all the work that they're doing. They should be, every, essentially every new generation of employees should be coming into the organization with a new established baseline. And then the work that they do should establish an even better baseline for people coming in. And that's that's how you develop people within an organization. So those are the three areas that you can think about when trying to think about your contribution for the organization. Choosing your contributions is also about having effective relationships. Choosing your contribution correctly is how you make your relationships productive. Because if you're thinking of your, about your colleagues when you ask, what contribution is required of me so that you can make your contribution to the organization? And thinking that way leads us to finding assumptions that we find obvious in our roles from our perspectives that might be unfamiliar to others who need to use our work. And the opposite might be true. We might be thinking about things that are highly important to us, are critical to us within our roles, but then they're irrelevant to other people that need to use our work. So in those cases, maybe we don't just need to spend so much time and effort trying to communicate those aspects to them. It's also about trying to figure out any issues with language. If it's if there's literal language barriers in, and maybe, maybe you're in a global organization or there might be terminology or language barriers with expertise or knowledge. Somebody who is a software expert versus somebody who is a design expert, for example. They may speak different technical languages. And the book actually goes over four basic requirements for effective human relationships. The first of which is communications. The key for communications is that they're two-way. For example, they can't just be superior down to subordinate. The subordinates should also be communicating up to their superiors. Superiors should be asking their subordinates, what contributions or expectations should I hold you to? In doing so, you're utilizing your subordinates' knowledge and ability, their own knowledge and ability, in order to make them more effective and have the relationship between you and them be more effective. The second basic requirement after communications is teamwork. And this is really essentially asking who must use my work to be effective, like I mentioned earlier. The third basic requirement is self-development. And self-development really depends on focusing on our contributions. It's about asking what is the most important contribution I can make. And then once you understand that, what self-development and or skills and or knowledge do I need in order to make that contribution? So you use choosing your contribution to guide your self-development. And then the fourth basic requirement for effective human relations is the development of others. Focusing on contribution stimulates others around you to develop themselves as well. It sets the standards in requirements. If you're the person who's working on something and you're defining the requirements, then you're setting those standards through your own work and you're demanding excellence through your own work. The last thing we will discuss about choosing your contributions is having an effective meeting. And in fact, meeting, report, presentation, take your pick. Choosing your contribution is critical. It's about defining the expectation for that meeting, report, or presentation and understanding what the purpose is and having it known before it actually happens. And it should be stated up front and an effective person that runs an effective meeting insists that it continues to serve that contribution and that it does not degenerate into something else, whether it's a problem session or, oh, we have extra time for this or no, they don't let that happen. They also relate the conclusion of the meeting or presentation to what that original contribution or intent was supposed to be. 
So we focus on contribution because to focus on contribution is essentially equivalent to focusing on effectiveness. It's about choosing what we're going to contribute. In other words, choosing what we're going to get done. And effectiveness is getting the right things done. That's managing time, choosing contributions. The third step to effectiveness is building on strengths. This is a big part of the book. It emphasizes we cannot build on weakness. We must use the available strengths. We also cannot concern ourselves too heavily or worry too much about trying to cover up or sure up the weaknesses. We instead need to focus most of our energy energy on building on the strengths, doubling down on our strengths, and making those strengths productive. The purpose of an organization is to make strengths productive. By using the strengths of individuals as building blocks, in doing so, we make the weaknesses irrelevant. Think of an example of a tax accountant. Say he's in a small private practice with not too many employees. And let's say this individual is a really good tax accountant, but he he's not so good at getting along with others. Not the best communicator. In that small private practice, he may be hindered by his inability to communicate well and, his, and, and get along with others in the sense of the people around him in, in terms of his colleagues and then in terms of his customers. Because if it's a small practice, odds are he's going to have to talk to some clients as a very skilled accountant. Now, think of that same exact accountant, but put him in a large organization. They recognize his strength, which is as a tax accountant. So they put him in an office or in a corner somewhere at some desk. Maybe he's even a remote worker. They allow him to focus on what he does best, being a tax accountant. They put him in a position where he's shielded from having to interact with people, which he doesn't even want to do, and they effectively utilize his strengths. They're not blind to his weaknesses. They're never going to make him a manager or put him in a position where it's critical or even a key part of his role to have to interact with people in that way. But that's completely fine. He's a great tax accountant. There are other people who can be great managers. Being a great tax accountant is in many ways more rare. So that's why when we staff, we staff from a position of strength. We staff to maximize the strengths. We don't staff to minimize the weaknesses. We first focus on strengths. And in bringing in new people and developing the current people, we should look for excellence in one major area. Not necessarily all-around performance that gets by, but excellence in one major area. And the book says that to do this is to take advantage of man's nature, man's gift, which is our ability to put one area of strength to work. That is to put all of our resources behind a single endeavor. And doing the opposite of that, instead of building on one focus, one area of strength to staff to avoid weaknesses, doing that leads to mediocrity at best. So why do we typically staff from weakness? Well, according to the book, it's because the main task is to fill the job. So when we're looking to fill the job, we end up relying on the job description and the requirements and looking for the least misfit, basically ticking the boxes, finding the candidate with the least to be desired. And that often leads to mediocrity. But if we staff from strength, we allow organization to fulfill its true potential, which is to have a set of people achieve performance that is greater than the sum of their parts. The book offers four rules on how to staff from strength. The first is that if a job defeats two or three people in a row, we should assume that it's unfit and redesign it. 
Even if it's logical on paper, even if people have previously performed well in the role, we need to ensure that the job is well-designed and not, for example, assuming that it's a genius or designed for a specific type of person. The second rule is that we need to make each job demanding and big. And this brings out any potential strength in a given candidate. We need to ensure that the scope of the role is designed such that strength in a key area produces significant results. If the job is big and demanding enough, it will enable someone to rise to it any new demands or new challenges from a change that might occur. It's especially important to have big demanding jobs for a beginning worker, a beginning knowledge worker especially. A knowledge worker in their first job has the standards set which are going to guide the rest of their career. They're going to measure themselves and their contributions and their success and their performance based off of this first job. It's important to ask early on, am I in the right work and is this the right place for my strengths? A young knowledge worker cannot answer that question if they're in a job that is too small for them. And that's often the case because they often end up with jobs that are too easy because they're designed to offset their lack of experience. A young knowledge worker with a job that's too small for them realistically either leaves or declines rapidly and becomes cynical and demotivated and overall unproductive. So make jobs demanding and big. The third rule is that we need to start with what one can do, not with what a job requires. In the United States, it's common to use a performance review in deciding if someone is right for a bigger role. Now, this might make sense, but what's common with performance reviews is they do highlight things that are going well and and highlight some strengths, but what usually happens is you review it with your superior and the superior says, these things are going really well. Good job on these. Keep it up. And they're basically just mentioned and they say because they're doing well, they figure they don't have to speak much on it. And then what happens is you spend most of the time discussing the weaknesses, discussing the areas of improvement and coming up with a plan to say, how are we going to pick up these areas? How are we going to improve these areas? How are we going to get better? And when considering them for a bigger role in that context, they're saying, okay, how do we fix these weaknesses before we put you in this bigger role? That's often the perspective. So what's really happening is you're diagnosing and focusing on weakness when you really should be focusing on the strengths. You don't ignore the weaknesses, but you should be spending much more time discussing the strengths and saying these are going well. How do we continue to make these go well? How do we make them go even better? These contributions that you are making to the organization, this is where your real value is coming from. So let's double down here. What do we have to do to make this go even better? And we do this because intuitively to focus on strength is to demand performance. The fourth rule is that to get strength, we must tolerate weakness. The book says that simplistically, when you're looking to hire somebody, ask three questions. One, does this person have strength in one major area? Two, is this area relevant to the task? And three, will achieving excellence in this area make a significant contribution? And the book says, if the answer to all three of these questions is yes, then in most situations you should hire that person. And it's implied that they must have some other weaknesses, but strong people have strong weaknesses. And it emphasizes that one strong candidate achieves more than two mediocre candidates with mild strengths and weaknesses. So from the perspective of this book, 
in many cases, if you're in a position to consider two candidates and one candidate is very strong in a key area, but has a clear and obvious weakness in another area, and you're comparing him with another candidate that is not necessarily strong or weak in either of those two areas, but is good enough and gets by in both of them. The book says you should really consider the person that is very strong in the one area because it says that 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 person is going to achieve more than the mediocre candidate with mild strengths and weaknesses. Before we move on, I want to mention something on Andrew Carnegie, who was a steel industry tycoon from the late 19th century and one of the richest Americans in history. He chose to have on his tombstone inscribed the following. Here lies a man who knew how to bring into his service men better than he was himself. Now, that's a pretty awesome line to have one of the most successful, richest industrialists of all time have describe himself on his tombstone. But the reality is, those men that he says were better than himself, they were better because Carnegie looked for their strengths and put them to work productively. They were better in one specific area and in that job. But overall, it was Carnegie who was the effective executive that enabled all of that. A superior owes it to their organization to make the strengths of their subordinates productive. But more importantly, a superior owes it to his or her subordinates to help them get the most out of their strengths. When a superior takes this responsibility seriously, an organization can serve as a tool for an individual to achieve through their strengths, regardless of their own limitations or weaknesses. From the perspective of a subordinate or somebody who reports to somebody else, which is pretty much everybody, you should also be working to make your superior's strengths fully productive. And it's in your own interest to do so because it enables focus on your own contributions to the organization. If you think about your superior's strengths and how that relates to your contribution, you can think about how your contribution can best feed into your superior and be well-received up the hierarchy and be more likely to be used by your superior and his or her peers. Focus on their strengths. Do not reform your superior. Make the best use of their abilities. Instead of trying to reform them, that is, trying to get your boss to overcome their limitations, ask, what can my boss do and what can they do well and enable the best use of those abilities. There are few things that make someone as effective in an organization as building upon their superior's strengths. Because nothing facilitates success in an organization quite like a successful and rapidly promoted superior. As an individual, building on strengths, making strengths productive, is really about making productive what you can do. When we chose our contribution, we asked, what can I do? That's why that leads into this next step of making strengths productive because you start with what can I do and then you lead from strength in your own work. You do not concern yourself too much with what you cannot do. You make productive what you can do and that is to focus on your strengths. Making strength productive is as much attitude as it is practice and habit. It's about being yourself and discovering what it is that seemingly comes easier to you and relatively difficult to others. 
So being effective is really about knowing and being yourself. And you do that by focusing on your strengths. Okay, that's managing time, choosing your contribution, building on strengths. The fourth out of five is focusing on priorities. The book offers the advice of feeding opportunities and starving problems. So when we're making priorities, keep that in mind. We focus on opportunities because there's always a time deficit, no matter how well we manage our time. There's always more contributions to be made than the time to make them. Focusing on our outward contribution and results requires large chunks of time and sustained efforts. To have any hope in navigating the eternal time deficit, we need self-discipline and the determination to say no. We also need concentration, and we need to do things one at a time. Doing things one at a time means doing things fast and getting more done. It doesn't literally mean that you're doing things more quickly, but doing things one at a time means you're focusing on one thing at a time and you're focusing on the one most important thing because you have set priorities and you know what the most important thing is and that is what you're focusing on and you're not letting anything else get in your way. You are concentrating your available strengths on the opportunities and that is the only way to get results. It's also important to shed no longer productive activities from our past and commit today's resources to the future. We do this by regularly asking ourselves, is this still worth doing? Before we start anything new, we should ask that of our existing activities. It's especially important in an organization and it serves as a form of organizational weight control and balance. We get rid of programs and activities and tasks that, were, that are no longer worth doing in order to concentrate on the few that if done excellently make a real difference in the results. And again, the number of productive tasks and opportunities far exceed the time and people available to do them. So we must prioritize. We must make conscious decisions on priorities or external pressures will. And important work will be sacrificed because there will not be enough time. So in identifying priorities, the book places a strong emphasis on aiming big and going after opportunities. It says it's just as risky and uncertain to do something small and new as it is to do something big and new. So aim big. It's more productive to convert an opportunity into results than to solve a problem because solving problems only restores yesterday. Achievement often depends more on the courage to go after an opportunity than the ability to actually capitalize on that opportunity. So with all that in mind, when identifying priorities, pick the future over the past, choose opportunities over problems, choose your own direction over the bandwagon, and aim high and for impact over work that is safe and easy. Along with priorities, it's just important to set posteriorities, which is what not to do. And the book says it's more difficult to set and stick to posteriorities than it is to set and stick to priorities. Each posteriority is often somebody else's top priority. When you're making a conscious decision to not work on something because it is not the most important thing, that can potentially come with some unpleasantness. 
It takes fortitude and courage to stick to a decision, especially a posteriority. Highly effective individuals do not truly commit themselves beyond the current task of concentration. They set their list of priorities, they work on the top priority, one at a time, focused, and then they finish it, and then when that happens, they reassess. And they think, is this list of priorities and posteriorities still valid? Does it still make the most sense? If it does, great, they keep going. But what often happens is things have changed and you need to reevaluate. To sum up priorities, the book calls concentration the courage to impose on time and events our own decision on what matters and comes first. And it says it is our only hope of mastering time and events instead of being controlled by them. The last of the five steps to effectiveness is making effective decisions. Effective decision makers do not necessarily make a great many decisions and they do not necessarily make quick decisions. They concentrate on the few important decisions that contribute the most results. They think strategically and generically rather than solving problems individually. They understand that the most time-consuming step is not in making the decision, but in putting it into effect. Because unless a decision degenerates into real work, it is not really a decision. It's just good intentions. An effective decision is based on the highest level of conceptual understanding, with the action to carry it out being as close to the working level and as simple as possible. In discussing effective decisions, it's helpful to understand what the book refers to as occurrence types. An occurrence is whatever problem or situation that results in the need to make some sort of a decision. So when finding yourself in some situation where you need to make a decision, an effective decision maker will first ask, is this situation generic or is it an exception? Because classifying it wrongly leads to the wrong decision. A truly generic occurrence is one in which that occurrence is only a symptom of a larger problem. In order to truly solve that problem, a decision must be made that enacts some sort of a rule or a principle in which it can be solved pragmatically. Most problems fall into this generic category. As an example, think of a retail store that has a lot of inventory problems. And say that the root cause of all these inventory problems is the fact that they do not have a robust inventory system. Let's say it's just like a bunch of sheets of paper on a clipboard and it's managed very loosely. You can imagine this store having many problems. Like they're always going to be running out of key items that sell out quickly. They're also not going to be able to recall very quickly if they've ran out of a particular item or if it's available in another size. Sure, they can try and attack each of these problems individually and try and solve them individually, but that's not the most pragmatic way to go about it. What an effective decision maker would do is understand that this is a generic occurrence. This is really a symptom of the fact that our inventory system sucks. And they would make a decision that enacts some sort of a rule that allows them to act on principle and works towards a larger solution. Sometimes occurrences can be unique for us or for an organization while still being generic at large. 
A good example of this is a company receiving an acquisition offer from a larger company. Now, they may receive multiple acquisition offers, but if they choose to accept any given acquisition offer, the process of making that decision of accepting the offer and going through that process of being folded into a larger company is in fact unique for their organization because if they accept, that's never going to happen to them again. Although this is unique from the perspective of that organization, it is something that indeed happens all the time. And when we find ourselves in these types of situations where something is unique from our perspective while being generic at large, the advice is to look to the experience of others. Beyond generic, there are some true exceptions, some unique events, and these occurrences are rare. Many understandably call the COVID-19 pandemic a truly exceptional, unique event. It makes sense. Not many of us can think of a global pandemic other than maybe 100 years ago, and none of us were around then. So certainly for modern society, it can be considered an exception. There was no precedent for the global economy shutting down. In general, when approaching what seems to be an exception, a unique event, we should always ask, is this a true exception? Is this truly unique? Or is this potentially the first manifestation of a new generic problem? And that in itself is a different type of occurrence, that the early manifestation of a new generic problem. And sometimes this can appear as an exception, and you might assume that it's an exception and you may not realize that a new generic problem has manifested. So it's important to always be aware that this is a possibility. Building off the example from COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic and, and the economy shutting down certainly was an exceptional event, but it did also manifest new generic problems, things that are going to continue that need to be dealt with. For example, the rise of remote work. Many organizations were not planning or prepared to deal with the rise of remote work. It was not something that was a problem for them or talked about or on their radar. When the pandemic hit and it accelerated the adaptation of remote work generally, now all of a sudden it's something that is not only accepted, it's in many times expected by employees or by potential candidates. So companies have to have a policy for dealing with it, a rule for dealing with it. All but those truly unique events require some sort of a generic solution, a decision that enacts a rule, a policy, or a principle. You handle all manifestations of that same generic occurrence pragmatically based off of the rule, policy, or principle. Effective decision makers assume an occurrence is generic and they think of a solution on the highest possible conceptual level. Another important element of decision making is defining the specifications. Another way of thinking of this is what are the boundary conditions that the solution to the problem must satisfy? This is typically the most difficult part in the decision-making process. If a decision does not satisfy these boundary conditions, it is ineffectual and inappropriate. And because of this, you need to take a considerable amount of effort and time in defining the specifications. Clear thinking on these specifications or boundary conditions is needed also so that we know when a decision should be abandoned. If you reach a point in which the initial boundary conditions can no longer be met, then going forward is just a waste because you're not going to be able to adequately address the problem. You're best calling it quits and abandoning that endeavor and adjusting from there. The book also emphasizes that defining the specifications, setting the boundary conditions, 
cannot happen on the facts in most cases, especially for the important decisions. For those, it's done mostly on interpretation. That is, it's a risk-taking judgment. Another element of decision-making is that we need to think through what is right before any compromises or adaptations that we think will be necessary in order to make the decision acceptable, either to the organization or to the customer or whoever it might be. We start with what is right rather than what is acceptable because we always end up having to compromise in the end, especially when we work in an organization. If we do not know what is right to satisfy the specifications on its own merit, then we cannot distinguish between the right or wrong compromise. We can't make the right compromise unless we're able to recognize what right is. The next key element of decision-making is that we need to build into the decision the action to carry it out. Converting a decision into action requires many things. You have to understand who must know about the decision. What action is going to need to be taken? Who's going to need to take that action? How many people are going to be impacted by this decision? And how will those people need to behave differently in order for this decision to be successful? How is it going to impact their work? The decision is not going to become effective unless the action commitments are built in from the start. Until that's done, until the actions are followed through, all you have, like we said, are good intentions. Along with building in the action to carry it out, we also need to build into the decision feedback mechanisms. We need to build into the decision the feedback to test the expectations of our underlying decision against the actual events. We need continuous feedback built in from the start because the best decisions have a high probability of being wrong or at least becoming obsolete. We should actually expect our assumptions to become obsolete sooner or later, even the ones that have been proven correct. Because reality never stands still for long. That was true in 1967. It's much more true today. So we need to build feedback into the decision, and it needs to be around direct exposure to reality. Otherwise, we're condemning ourselves to ineffectiveness. Another sometimes unappreciated element of decision-making that this book says is quite important is disagreement. I mentioned earlier that making a decision is a judgment. It's not a choice between right and wrong. To the contrary, it is often making a judgment between options in which one is not more provably right or wrong than the other. At best, you might be making a decision between an option in which one seems potentially a little bit more right or a little bit less wrong than the other one. Effective decisions stem from a conflict of opinions, a dialogue between perspectives, and a choice between judgments. Effective decision-makers encourage opinions and insist that they are well thought through. Many effective decision-makers do not make a decision unless there has been established disagreement. We need disagreement in order to consider alternatives. Otherwise, we risk being closed-minded. Disagreement is how we gain an understanding of what a decision is really about, and it stimulates our imagination. Effective decision-makers organize disagreement. They do not assume that any one proposal or action is right and that the others are wrong. In fact, they are committed to discovering why people disagree. We should assume that those who disagree with us are intelligent and fair and that they see a different reality and are concerned with a different set of problems than us. Effective decision-makers view opposition 
and a conflict of opinion as a means to think through a decision and its alternatives. Another important consideration with decision-making is what is the measurement for relevance and success? The greatest decisions have had a great amount of time, work, and thought put into determining what the best measurement is, again, for relevance and success. The effective decision-maker assumes that the traditional measurements are not right, or at least not the best. Otherwise, there would be no need for a decision, maybe a simple adjustment. The traditional measurement reflects yesterday's decision and yesterday's reality. And we must find the appropriate measurement by looking for feedback, which, as we discussed, needs to be built into the decision. This might be best understood through an auto industry example offered through the book. At a point before the book was published, again in 1967, at some point the auto industry was measuring average accidents per mile driven. And they were using that as their key metric for determining success in the safety of automobiles. And while that's certainly important to know and important to measure, what they ended up learning is that they also needed to measure something else that was important, which was the severity of injuries from any particular accident. Including that in their focus highlighted the need to make any accident less dangerous so that it's less likely to harm the people involved. And that's done through automotive design as opposed to other measures that you might put in to make accidents less frequent. So finding a better measurement directly impacted the approach to safety engineering in the automobile industry and made vehicles safer as a result. Just like decision-making is a risk-taking judgment and defining the specifications is a risk-taking judgment, finding the appropriate measurement is also a risk-taking judgment. And it does require us to go out and look and get feedback before the decision. We must have alternatives of measurement to get insight into what is truly at stake. At some point, all this work that we're talking about that goes into decision-making, at some point it's going to be done. And the decision is going to be ready to be made. The specs have been thought through. Alternatives have been explored. We've weighed all the risks. Everything is known. We have a clear course of action. And it's at this point when most decisions are lost. After all the work is done. That's what the book says. Suddenly, it's clear that this will not be pleasant, popular, or easy, and that it will require courage and judgment to follow through on the decision. While we don't want to rush without understanding, we also definitely, definitely do not want to waste time to cover up our indecision. An effective decision maker, once they get to this point, is not going to give in to the temptation to say, oh, let's, let's do another, let's have another study on this. Let's have another meeting on this. Let's discuss a little bit further. Or, or let's, let's come back to this next week. Or, or let, let's bring this person in and see what they think. When there's no reason to believe that any of that will produce anything new or relevant. At this point, the effective decision maker does not hesitate. They do not wait long. They act with speed and with energy and they execute. That is decision making. And those are the five steps for effectiveness gone through in great detail. Hopefully by now you are more inclined to understand that effectiveness and performance are linked and that effectiveness is crucial to both self-development and organizational development. And so, because effectiveness is crucial to individual performance and individual development, especially if you're someone in an organization, let's very quickly review 
some action and information about each of the five steps from the perspective of an individual. On time, record and analyze your time. You can get substantial improvement from this alone and fast and immediate results. The key is that you need to record your time in real time. Do not wait. Do not say, oh, this is what I did in the past hour or two. This is what I did in the past day. Record it in real time. Doesn't matter what the method is. Notes app on your phone, time tracking app, a journal, physically, whatever you want to use. As long as it's simple and something you can stick to. It's a good idea to at least twice a year take a sufficient sample of your time which the book considers three to four weeks and and record that time and perform the analysis your time waste will become immediately clear in your face and on the record and you'll intuitively begin to make better decisions on your time you'll also begin to understand certain patterns and that certain activities lead to others so if there's certain unproductive demands and you see oh this tends to be a reaction to this then you can better account for that It's all about thinking about how to better structure your day and design your lifestyle around what's truly important. It requires action, better decision-making, and changes in your behavior, relationships, and the things you're concerned with. But with any continuity, recording and analyzing your time intuitively nudges us towards the next steps for greater effectiveness. After time, we focus on contribution, and this is where we move from procedure and efficiencies to concepts and results. Results over effort. We're accountable for the performance of the whole, and we need to look for unused potential in our roles, not just what the job description says. This leads to a high demand on ourself, our own goals, and the organization as a whole. Focusing on our contribution enables us to think through our purpose and the ends rather than just the means alone. After contribution, we make strength productive. The book says this is an attitude expressed in behavior and a value system in action. We must lead from strength in our own work by asking, what can I do? And then making that productive. We learn by doing and we implement self-development through practice. Organization can be a tool for an individual to make their strengths productive. But in order to do so, there are three things that must be aligned between the individual and the organization. The individual's purpose, which they are responsible for defining, has to be aligned with the organization's needs. The individual's capabilities must be aligned with the organization's results. The third thing that must be aligned is that individual achievement must be aligned with an organizational opportunity. That makes sense. When you achieve, when you win, when you succeed, that needs to somehow be associated and affiliated with an opportunity for the organization. And that way, you are incentivized to double down on your strengths and double down on those contributions. After making strength productive, the fourth of the five effectiveness practices is prioritizing. First things first. We move from the resource of time to our end goal of performance. What needs to be done? It's about priorities and posteriorities. We're not developing information here. We're developing leadership We're developing foresight, self-reliance, courage, dedication, determination, and purpose. It takes all these things to set priorities and stick to them. The last of the five steps for effectiveness, from the perspective of an individual, is effective decision-making. This is all about rational action, because there is no longer a broad or clear path to follow and gain effectiveness in this step. Effective decision-making 
is what the book calls ethics of action. We must develop and train ourselves in responsible judgment. As an individual, knowledge, skills, and habits produce nothing without effectiveness. The goal of effectiveness is modest. We can all hope to achieve it. Self-development of an executive towards further effectiveness, what it is is developing a person. People need accomplishment. Effectiveness in an organization is a tool for that purpose. I hope you also better understand now that effectiveness is also critical for organizations. Similar to individuals, organizations fulfill their needs through effectiveness by collecting contributions and strengths from individuals and using them as building blocks. The self-development of individuals is central to organizational development. Effective organizations motivate their people to self-development through their standards, habits, and environment. As the individuals in a given organization work towards effectiveness, they raise the overall performance level and capabilities of the organization. The aspirations of the organization and the people involved change because the directions and the goals and the purposes are challenged. The focus shifts from problems to opportunity and vision, from worrying about weakness to exploiting strengths. The organization becomes more attractive to people of higher ability and aspiration from the outside, and the people within are motivated to higher performance and dedication. An effective organization needs effective individuals making high-impact decisions based on their knowledge, and it needs them to take ownership of the results of the whole through their own work. Effective organizations are not common. The book says they're even more rare than effective executives. Organizations and individuals need to work systematically on effectiveness and acquire it as a habit. They need to learn to feed opportunities and starve problems and on working to make strength productive. And they need to concentrate and set priorities instead of doing a little bit of everything. We've talked a lot about individuals and the organizations. What about society? How do we have an effective, modern, developed society? Because knowledge work and the large knowledge organization is the central reality of the modern developed society. Therefore, the fulfillment and viability of our society depends on effectiveness. Effective executives enable the two needs of society. The first is the need of the organization to obtain contributions from individuals. And the second is the need of the individual to have organizations serve as a tool for their purposes. Effectiveness makes modern society economically productive and socially viable. The cohesion and strength of our society depends on the needs of workers being aligned with the goals of the organizations and the overall society. We obtain the satisfactions of opportunity, achievement, and fulfillment by making ourselves effective. If we do not make ourselves effective, particularly those of us in knowledge work, we are in danger of alienation, boredom, and frustration. So we must satisfy both of the objective needs of society— for performance by organizations, and the needs of individuals for achievement and fulfillment. Self-development towards effectiveness is the clear answer. Effectiveness must be learned for all of these reasons that I've stated. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of So-Called Discoveries. I hope the information has been interesting to you and maybe even valuable. I hope that you have learned something. See you.